0: Good morning and welcome. We are so glad that you're here worshiping with us. And for those of you who are in our overflow rooms or on Facebook Live, we're glad to be worshiping with you as well. Uh, For those of you who I don't know, my name is Ryan, and I have the privilege of serving as college pastor here at Northway. And I'm really excited to be able to be here with you this morning and to share and to study God's Word with you. So we're continuing our Verified series, actually wrapping it up But when this Verified series started, the day after Pastor Kevin started this series, I got this email from him, and I want to share it with you. So I got this email from Pastor Kevin, and it said, Hello, Ryan. I'm planning to surprise some of the staff with gifts. Your confidentiality will be appreciated. However, I need you to get a purchase done. Email me once you get this done, or once you get this. Regards, Lead Pastor Kevin Mills. Now, As many of you are right now, I was pretty skeptical of this email when I received it. There's many reasons for that, but there are two primary reasons. One, because I know that Pastor Kevin would never put me or anyone else in a compromising position dealing with money like this. He would never ask us to deal in a way that could be shady when it came to money. I I know this. But the second reason, and this is the one that he really wanted you to understand and really wanted to know, is that he would never have an email this poorly worded. (laughs) His grammar is not this bad. And so I knew upon reading this that though this email carried his name and even carried his title and position, it was not really from him. It was not an actual verified email from Pastor Kevin. So the reason why I tell you this is we are wrapping up our verified series where we've looked at what it looks like to be a verified, true, authentic follower of Christ. And throughout this series, we've been in the letter of First John. And First John was written by John to the church at Ephesus. And what had happened is this uh, Gnostic heresy, this false teaching, had infiltrated the church at Ephesus. That many of its people and its leaders had given way to this false teaching. And then eventually they left. And so the church at Ephesus was at a point of turmoil and instability. Where they're uncertain of where to go from here. They're uncertain of how they'll respond if more false teaching comes. They're having their own doubts. But it's not just some distant uncertainty for them. This was something that was extremely personal. That these people that had given to, over to this false teaching, they were their friends. The people that they spent a lot of time with. The people that they welcomed into their homes. Their, their kids played together. They shared meals with one another. They deeply loved and trusted one another. But now, all of a sudden, they've walked away from the church. But not just the local church. They've walked away from Christianity altogether. And there's, there's feelings of sadness and brokenness for sure. But it also raises some doubts and some questions that these people who I love and trust, who I think similarly to and have had similar experiences to, they've left the faith, so what does this mean for me? But it wasn't just their friends, it was their teachers, their leaders, the people that they would go and sit under their teaching week in and week out, the people that they would go and ask for wisdom and for counsel. The people, maybe, that had even brought them to faith and maybe even baptized some of them. And now they've left and they've walked away from the Christian faith altogether. And so, for these people left here in the church at Ephesus, they're questioning things. They have doubts, they have uncertainty creeping into their hearts. They're uncertain of their own personal relationship with God. They're uncertain of their salvation. They're uncertain on how they're going to deal with future false teachings and uncertain if they will even, what if they themselves buy into some false teaching. There's a whole lot of uncertainty. And so John writes this letter to them to be an encouragement to them, to give them assurance. He states his purpose all throughout his letter, and he has a good verse here in chapter 5, verse 13, that summarizes everything we're talking about this morning and really summarizes the whole book, the whole letter. He says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. He says, I'm writing to you that you would know that you have eternal life, that you would have assurance of your salvation, that you would be confident that you are in right standing with your almighty creator God. And this letter is not just an encouragement for them It's for us as well. That we know that all scripture is God-breathed and useful and beneficial for our teaching and our encouragement and our exhortation. And so we know that these words, they're good for us too. Because so often we can feel like these people at Ephesus felt. Just last year, I was having a conversation with a couple of my friends who, they followed these famous YouTubers named Rhett and Link. Rhett and Link, they're... uh, they were raised in the church. They actually served as missionaries for an organization called Crew. One of them even led worship at a church. He was on staff at a church. And so uh, they eventually gained this following through YouTube. And so they were these very public and famous followers of Christ. And so my friends, they really loved them. They, they were drawn to them. These guys were funny. They were nice. They were charismatic. They were seemed just genuinely authentic people. And so it was cool for them to watch the Christian faith be lived out in a public way. It was encouraging. But then just this past year, Rhett and Link did a series on YouTube where they announced something that had been going on in their heart for years, where they announced that they had fully walked away from the Christian faith. And I talked to my friends, and they were really struggling with this. That these people that they trusted, that that it seemed so solid, were now not even Christian. And it raised questions in their own hearts. And I I remember speaking to one of my friends in particular. He says, man, my life, I really felt like followed the pattern of their lives. I grew up similarly, I had similar experiences, I even had similar questions and doubts. And so now, if they're not even Christian, what does that mean for me? Am I even a real follower of Christ? And my guess is that many of you have felt these feelings of doubt before. And maybe it was similar to the people at Ephesus, where you've had a friend or a loved one, someone you care about, who you did life with and were close with, who walked away from the Christian faith. And with them walking away, yes, it brought sadness in your heart, but it also raised questions about your own salvation. It, doubt creeped into your mind and into your heart. Or maybe it was some teacher or a leader or a pastor that you really trusted and you really respected and you sat under their teaching. Maybe they even are the, one, the reason why you came to faith and they baptized you, but then they had some sort of moral failure. And they left the church, or maybe it was just all together, they left the church. And it's left you with questions and and uncertainty and instability in your relationship with God and lack of assurance with your salvation. See, we so often can feel this way. And maybe for some of you, it's just general doubts and general feelings, general questions that creep into your heart and your mind. So Pastor Kevin has walked us through this verified series, walked us through the letter of 1 John, picking out different themes and principles and and taking one each week, discussing them so that we can have assurance in our salvation, so we can see what it looks like to have a real and genuine, authentic relationship with Jesus. And so this morning, as we wrap up our series, I want to take a bird's eye view of this letter and look at, at the encouragement that John gives for how we can have assurance in our salvation, that we can have confidence in our relationship with God. So I'm gonna give us three things and walk us through how can we have assurance? Three things we see in this letter from John. Um, And you can follow along with your message map. We'll be all throughout, bouncing throughout the letter of 1 John. First is it all starts with true belief. It all starts with true belief. This is the foundation of everything. John tells us that, the one who is born of God is the one who overcomes the world. The one who is born of God is the one who overcomes the world. And then it says, who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? So he gives us these two categories, the one who is born of God and the one who believes in Jesus. They're the one who are going to overcome the world. He has a conversation, Jesus does, in his lifetime with a man named Nicodemus. And he says that no one can come and see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. And Nicodemus, like probably many of us, is like, Jesus, that doesn't really make sense. I'm, I'm old. I can't really, you know, redo that whole process. I can't go back. It doesn't make sense. But what Jesus was speaking about were spiritual things. And what John tells us in chapter 5 verse 1 is that everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. See, The way to see the kingdom, the way to have eternity, to have salvation, to have life is through believing in Jesus because believing in Jesus causes us to be born again, born of God, just like John had said. See, we all have a need to be born again. Why? Because we were all sinners. Every single one of us has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've all offended and sinned against a holy and almighty God. And when you commit an offense— you break a rule, a law, there are consequences, right? There's punishment. And we get this. If a three-year-old hits another child, then there's going to be consequences for the actions. she will probably get time out or something. If you get pulled over going 20 miles over the speed limit, there will be consequences for your actions. There, you'll probably get some sort of ticket or some sort of fine. If someone were to commit an act of treason against some sovereign nation, there would be consequences for the actions. It would probably lead to some sort of imprisonment or maybe even death. And so we have to understand that our offense is against an almighty God, and that offense is a very act of treason, and it leads to death. The Bible tells us that we are dead in our sins and transgressions. And that our punishment for our sins, the debt that is incurred, is death. That is our disposition before our creator, God. We are far from him, not in right relationship with him. Every single one of them. But what all of scripture teaches and what John proclaims here in this letter is that the the love of God was made manifest among us. That God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him and this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. It says that when God looks down at us in our deadness, our lifelessness, not because of anything that we have done, not because of anything that we have, uh, the way that we've loved him. In fact, we are in active rebellion against him, but solely because of his love, he sends Jesus down that we could have life. Jesus lived the perfect life that we could not live. He kept every command. He was sinless in every way. And then he who knew no sin became sin to be the propitiation for our sins. That word propitiation, it's a fancy churchy word that essentially means to to be appeased, to satisfy, to atone for And so the promise, so Jesus, he died on the cross, but then God raised him from the grave in victory. And the promise is that if you will believe and trust in Jesus, for those that believe in who Jesus is and what he did on the cross and that God raised him from the dead, if they'll believe it on an intellectual level, but they would also trust it with their lives, trust that it was done for them, that Jesus, as John says, becomes their advocate, their intercessor, the one who goes between them and God, he takes their place on the cross, that his death substitutes for their death, that his death satisfies, appeases, atones for the debt that was incurred by their sin because on the cross he cried out, it is finished, it is done, paid in full. He intercedes on their behalf so that when God looks on them, he doesn't see a sinner deserving of his wrath. He sees the righteousness of Jesus and the perfection of Jesus. And because Jesus defeated sin and death through his resurrection, those that believe and trust in him as the son of God, they are set free from the power of sin and the power of death. They are saved. They are born again into newness of life and they're in right relationship with God, and this is the foundation of it all. You cannot hope to have assurance in your eternity, in your salvation. You cannot hope to have assurance that you're in right relationship with God apart from believing in Jesus. He is the only way, the only truth, and the only life. Everyone comes to the Father through Him. This is the bedrock foundation, and if we miss this, then we miss everything. There's no other way to go from death to life other than believing in Jesus. And then John says true belief, true belief leads to obedience. That true belief leads to action. And we understand this. When you really believe something, it leads you into action. I was reading a book on evangelism, and this uh, author was writing about a time he was at a conference, and they were waiting for the session to start. And all of a sudden, the fire alarm goes off. And it's loud, it's repetitive, it's going on and on and on. And he said that everyone just kind of looked around the room to see, okay, like, is this real? Is this not real? Uh, is this, there really a fire? Like, what do we need to do? And they're just kind of checking it out. He said, but one man all of a sudden shoots up and just bolts out of the room. He said, who in that room was the true believer? The man who got up and ran, right? All these other people can say, oh yeah, there probably was a fire or whatever, but they didn't really believe it because if they believed it, they would have got up and ran too. Only one person there was a true believer because his belief led to action. See, true belief leads to action. Hear me say this, a true follower of Christ will follow Christ. A true follower of Christ will follow Christ. See, there's so many people who like to check that box Christian? They are good with ascribing to Jesus as their Lord and their king, but they have no intention of letting Jesus sit on the throne of their hearts. They're good with Jesus, and some of the things he does and says, they're good with him being their get-out-of-hell free card. They're good with him changing their eternity, but they have no intention of letting him change their lives. And what John says is abundantly clear that this is not true of the true believer. That when you truly follow Christ, it impacts everything. Like Eric was saying earlier, it infiltrates the very fiber of who you are from the inside and then that inside change changes you on the outside. It changes your direction. It changes how you act because with new life comes a new direction. You are born again. You have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you, helping you to obey the commands of Jesus. And like I said, John is abundantly clear all in this letter that true belief leads to obedience. We're not, we don't have time to go through every single verse, but a lot of them are in your message map. But I'll just highlight one and talk about some of the others. This says, and by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. It says, how can you know that you have come to know Jesus if you keep his commands. It says, we know that we're in him if we walk in the way that he walks. That everyone who practices righteousness, right living before God, is clearly born of God. No one who abides in God, who clings to him, who rests in him, who is of God, can keep on in the practice of sinning, is what John tells us. Because he's been born of God. And, and the commands for the Christian, they're not burdensome. They don't create a weight. They're freeing. It's a joy to, and a delight to follow Christ. And, and John paints a very stark picture here as he, he goes to the natural other side of the coin that if, if the true believer follows Christ, the natural thought is that those who do not follow Christ must not be true believers. And he gives so many warnings. He says, Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Someone to say, hey, I know God, I love God, I'm in God, but then to live how they want to live, and their life not be lived in obedience to God, he's like, the truth isn't in that person. Says, no one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Whoever, he even makes a strong statement to say whoever makes a practice of sinning who lives in a way that is unrepentant in sin is of the devil. Now, hear me say this. What I am not saying and what John is not saying is that everyone in Christ is perfect. If you are a follower of Christ, you know that this is not true. In fact, John says that if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. See, when we follow Christ, we're not perfect, but our lives are marked by obedience. That if you look at the overall trajectory of our life, we are made to look more and more like Jesus. And yes, we stumble. Yes, we fall. But what he says is that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Because Jesus, remember, is our advocate, our intercessor. That Our sins were crucified on the cross of Christ so we can confess them freely knowing that he's forgiven us and that freedom gives us the freedom to pursue him and to chase after him and to pursue righteousness and to pursue his commands. So no, the believer is not perfect, but the life of the believer is marked by obedience because with new life comes a new direction. You're born again in Christ. The Holy Spirit dwells in you and helps you to better obey the commands of Jesus and to follow Jesus. And also, and finally, true belief leads to love. True belief leads to love. The recipient of love becomes the distributor of love. And know this and believe this, Christian, You have been the recipient of the greatest love there is. What John tells us is that we love because he first loved us. That while we were unlovable, while we were sinners in direct rebellion to him, he demonstrated his great love for us and that Christ died for us. That he crossed heaven and earth and he suffered on a cross just to redeem us and to call us home. That is the love with which you were loved. And so recipients of love become distributors of love. Again, John is abundantly clear throughout his letter on this truth. But I'll just show you one verse in particular. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. He says, you know that you've gone from death to life because of the way you love one another. That is how you know. That is the mark of a true Christian. He says, God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. He says, everyone who loves the Father also loves everyone who's been born of the Father. And you might say, what does this love look like? Well, one, we look at the example of Christ that's in Scripture, but we also see it all embedded throughout the narrative of Scripture, and some verses that are really key and informative in uh, what love looks like in action is 1 Corinthians, 3, or 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7, where it says, Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Christian. That is what will be said of you. Because the love with which you were loved will cause you then to go and move in this way towards the world around you. And again, he, he paints the other side of the picture too, saying that if, if someone says that they're in the light, but then hates his brother, then he's in the darkness. He's not really in the light. He says that everyone who does not love abides in death. He says that, If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? He says, if you are someone who's been blessed with resources and blessed with with different things, yet you look and see your brother or sister in Christ hurting and in need, but you turn away from them, can you really say that the love of God abides in you? He says, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. You can't say that you know God and that you love God, but then refuse to love. God is the definition of love. And he says, who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love the God whom he has not seen. He said, it's absolutely ridiculous for us to look at our creator God and say, oh, I love you, God, but then to turn and look at his created being that he is stamped in his image, that he has died on the cross to save and be like, oh, I'm not going to love you. is absolutely ridiculous. It is not so in the mind and the heart of the Christian because as we love God, his love flows through us and allows us to love others well. The recipients of great love become the distributors of love. So how can we have assurance? What well, it starts with true belief. Truly believing in Jesus as the Son of God. And then when we believe that, when we are His children, that true belief leads to obedience and it leads to love. Those are the marks of someone who is genuinely a follower of Christ. And you might say, but what if I struggle? What if I struggle with these things? What if doubt creeps into my mind and my heart and I struggle to believe. I just want to say, welcome to the club. <laughs> the, the Christian faith is one where so many of us, most if not all, struggle with doubt in some way, shape, or form. You are not alone in your doubts and questions. But I'll give you this, something that has been really helpful for me in my own life. When I struggle with doubt, when I have questions, when I have uh, uncertainty that rises in my heart, uh, a prayer that I got from Mark chapter 9, where Jesus goes to this man and this man's son was possessed by a demon and he cried out to Jesus to to cast the demon out and Jesus says, it's possible if you believe. And the man says to Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. He said, Jesus, I believe, help my heart believe. He's acknowledging, saying, Jesus, I, I get it, I believe, I do, but there's parts in my mind and in my heart that can't fully wrap around it. I'm struggling to have belief. I'm struggling to have faith. So Jesus, please give me the gift of faith. I believe, Jesus, help my unbelief. You see, what we don't necessarily need is more intellect or more knowledge or more understanding. Now, I'm not saying don't go search for intellect and knowledge and understanding. Those are good things. In fact, if you're struggling with doubts, I would encourage you to go to seek wise counsel. Seek defined understanding. Seek out your answers. But the issue is not necessarily with intellect. The issue is with our faith and our belief. And when we struggle with these things, we need to mimic the prayer of this man, of this father, and cry out to God and say, God, I believe, but help my unbelief. This is a prayer that I pray regularly in my life when I struggle to believe. I say, Jesus, help me believe more. God, give me the, the gift of faith. You might be saying, what do you do when you struggle to, to, to obey? I'm, I'm struggling to, to, to live a life of obedience. I'm struggling and battling with sin. I want to point you back to 1 John 1.9, what we read earlier. Where it says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You need to know and you need to believe that your sins were crucified on the cross of Christ. That Jesus is your advocate, your intercessor, working and mediating between you and God and that when God sees you, he doesn't see a sinner deserving of his wrath, he sees his child. He sees Jesus' righteousness on you. And so you then have the freedom to confess that sin that you're struggling with, to battle and fight that sin in light of what was done with you on the cross. I would encourage you, if you're struggling, battling with sin, get with other believers, surround them, help them keep you accountable, help them to help you fight. Pray and ask God uh, to do what it tells us in Galatians 5, to, to keep in step with the Spirit. That that God would help you walk in obedience with this Holy Spirit that's dwelling in you so that that, he could help you to follow Jesus' commands more, that you'd keep in step with the Spirit. And you say, what do you do when I struggle to love? When I struggle to be patient and kind, when I find myself prideful or arrogant or irritable and rude, I would just encourage you to look at the love with which you were loved. Call to your mind and to your heart regularly the love with which you were loved that while you were Christ's enemy he suffered and died on a cross for you to call you home that is the love with which you were loved and then allow that love to flow in you and through you and outside of you as you interact with the world around you because remember the recipients of great love will be the distributor of great love and so remind yourself daily of this gospel truth Let it flood your mind, let it fall to your heart, and let it be the thing that marks the way you live. So how can we have assurance? Evaluate your heart. Look at your life. Do you believe and trust in Jesus with the very depths of your heart? Is your life characterized by obedience and following him? Is love a defining characteristic of who you are? And if yes, I hope you'll be encouraged. My hope and my prayer for you is that if you can say these things are true of you, that you would know your disposition before your creator, God. That you would know that you've been redeemed and set free from sin and from death. That you would know and have confidence and assurance in your salvation and your right relationship with God. That you would be able to rest in the words of Romans 8. Where he says, shall tribulate, or who, what, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I pray that those words would encourage you as you rest firmly in the strong right hand of God in Jesus, knowing that absolutely nothing can pluck you from his hand, that that would give you confidence and assurance as you go through this life and as you're propelled and you would be a light in the darkness of this world and that as others look at the light you have, they would be encouraged to look at the source of that light, which is your heavenly Father, and that they too can come to know him. I pray that you'd have that assurance. Now, if your answer to those questions were no, though, then I really hope that this study, that this morning, that as you have read the words of John in this letter, that it's been a sobering realization for you. If you were just checking the box Christian and kind of treating Jesus like a buffet, picking and choosing what you like and what you don't like, but you have no real desire to let him sit on the throne of your heart and to keep his commands if you are practicing sin and and you're walking in unrepentant sin, if you find yourself consistently impatient and unkind and arrogant and rude and irritable and you're not being loving towards others, I hope and I pray that you too would know your disposition before your Creator God. That you would know that your sin has incurred the penalty of death. That you are dead in your sins and there's nothing in and of yourself that you can do to merit or fix it. But I truly hope and pray that you would know what was done for you through Jesus. That while you were still a sinner, while you were his enemy, he crossed heaven and earth to die and to suffer on a cross for you. That his death can serve as the substitution for your death. That if you will believe in Jesus and who he is and what he did on the cross and believe that God raised him from the dead, that if you would turn from your sin and trust him with your life, that you could be born again, that you could receive the newness of life, that you too can have confidence and assurance in your salvation, that you can have confidence and know that you are in right relationship with your God. I hope and I pray that if that is you, that you will turn to Jesus today.